Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Jason Barney here for Educational Renaissance, and I'm excited to share with you today a refresh of a blog I did a couple years ago called Educating for Self-Control, Part 1, A Lost Christian Virtue. If there's any virtue that Christians need, especially in contemporary society, it's self-control. We have available to us more seductive entertainment, more well-advertised temptations, and even more innocent pleasures like unhealthy foods, which end up not being so innocent in the long run, than any other people in any time in the history of the world. The average first world Christian experiences a higher standard of living than the richest kings of the ancient and the Middle Ages. Our prosperity itself may be the greatest weapon the enemy ever devised. And unfortunately, at such a moment, self-control is one of the most neglected Christian virtues, from the pulpit at least, mostly because of a misplaced concern about legalism. You know what I'm talking about. And yet, in spite of that, this idea that self-control is important comes from the most anti-legalistic book in the New Testament. Just think of the book of Galatians for a minute. If there was ever a book that expressed the importance of by faith alone, not work so that no one can boast, it's the book of Galatians. And yet here Paul is in Galatians 5, to 23, mentioning it as the final crowning virtue of the fruit of the Spirit. Too often we forget that Paul says right after Galatians 1 through 5 in chapter 6, the statement, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The Christian virtue of self-control is explained here in more detail as like the farmer planting a sowing to the Spirit rather than to the flesh. For Paul, it's not an optional add-on. It's actually a central requirement for reaping the Christian reward of eternal life. The Apostle Peter, too, tells us that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The word godliness right there is the word piety, which is an ancient Greek virtue that involved self-control in order to serve others. And he goes on to say that it's through God's promises that we can become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We actually can partake in God's glory and excellence, his arete, his virtue. 
And so based on these promises that God's given us, our rescue by him from the world's corruption and incontinence, he then encourages us not to rest on our laurels and just go with the flow, but instead to, quote, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. And that's 2 Peter 1, 5 through 6. Peter closes out the paragraph there, emphasizing not just the connection of these qualities to effectiveness and fruitfulness in verse 9, but also their necessity for entering into God's eternal kingdom. Now, I think that all of this should convince us to pay more attention to developing self-control as Christians. So let's go ahead and then explore now what self-control actually is by looking at the roots of the idea from its earlier Greek philosophical milieu. So the Greek roots of self-control. The idea of self-control comes from the Greek enkrateia. The word enkrateia was coined by Socrates' disciples, Xenophon, Plato, and Isocrates. And it comes from a Greek root word meaning power or mastery. For Xenophon, self-control was not just a virtue, but was the foundation of all the virtues, according to Werner Jagger's Paideia, the ideals of Greek culture. It's easy to see why if we think for a moment about how courage, prudence, justice, and temperance, the four cardinal virtues, all require a person to set aside unruly passions like fear, envy, partiality, laziness, and lust to pursue some higher and more rational mode of operating towards others, towards ourselves, and towards the world. Self-control seems more like a necessary ingredient in the cardinal virtues than simply a virtue itself, even if we could associate it with temperance most of all. Well, for Aristotle, with his growth mindset, check out my article on the topic, self-control was actually more like a stepping stone on the way to complete virtue. And that's partly because his developed virtue theory hypothesized that even having wayward emotions, you know, in the first place, was the result of having a disordered soul. The self-controlled person is certainly better than either what he calls the acratic person, the without any control person, who knows what's right and reasonable and yet is swept away by some passion, either because they're weak and after thinking it through, their passion still wins out, or because they're impetuous. They don't deliberate about it at all. They don't think about it, but simply give in right away. But the need for self-control implies for Aristotle that a person is desiring things that aren't good, that are in some sense irrational. And therefore, such a person is not fully virtuous in that area. 
Now this reflection of Aristotle's, I think, has an analogy in the Apostle John's statement in 1 John that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Now, of course, from a Christian perspective, the experience of being tempted or having a sinful desire is not in itself sinful. This is a necessity if for no other reason than the fact that Christ himself, according to Hebrews, was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. But even for us, I think, in general reflection, we would probably agree with Aristotle to a certain extent that the person who who doesn't have to fight off, for instance, the temptation to eat cupcakes all day long, but instead gets hungry at normal times for good, wholesome food, is in a more excellent or virtuous state than the other. And we all in heaven, of course, would expect that we will desire only what is good. And therefore, the exercise of self-control will be, at that point, for all intents and purposes, unnecessary. Nevertheless, on our road to that perfect bliss, self-control, the will to refrain from giving in to our wayward desires, stands clearly before us as Christians. As Paul himself says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, says Paul. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So self-control may have been named by Greek philosophers, practiced by athletes, and endorsed by Stoics, but the New Testament has claimed it as a Christian virtue. And therefore, I think we neglect it at our peril. And peril it is if we neglect self-control. It's like the sirens of Greek mythology, the lure of the flesh, and the desire of the eyes and the lust of the world that conspire to entrap the Christian through their seductive song, only to shipwreck our lives on the shoals of sin. Which brings us to the topic of the school of self-control. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. These days, education doesn't normally aim 
directly at inculcating willpower or self-control. And I think this is partly the case because of the influence of pragmatism. Virtues like self-control, though incredibly practical in nature, still have fallen into neglect since they are associated with personal values, philosophy, and religion. Directly focusing on them is suspect in the modern world, where the avoidance of traditional values has become of paramount importance, especially in public schools. But for us as Christian educators, the power and ubiquity of the siren's call in our world should cause us concern. Now, there may be other contributing factors to the exodus of some of our youth from the church, either after high school or college, but it is at least worth considering whether the failure of Christian homes, churches, and schools to train them in self-control is a prime candidate. People don't leave the faith for primarily intellectual reasons but for moral and relational ones. If they are unable to resist the siren's call of a self-indulgent culture, then sooner or later, they are likely to abandon ship. Or perhaps it would be better to say, make shipwreck of their faith, to maintain the image and reference to 1 Timothy 1.19. Paul's own metaphor for what happens when someone doesn't hold on to a good conscience. But how can we teach self-control? Can we even teach self-control? What practical steps can be done for us to make every effort as Peter encourages us? Now, of course, there's a sense in which every person must deliberately seek self-control for himself. But respecting that principle of an individual responsibility and the work of grace in each person's life, how can we work at creating little schools of self-control in our homes, our churches, and yes, indeed, our Christian schools? Again, it may be strange to Think of the purpose of a school as a gymnasium for forming virtues like self-control, especially Christian ones. Though, as we've seen, self-control is of a Greek philosophical origin, and it's been studied as well by modern neuroscience and psychology. So, in the case of self-control, it's not as though we're trying to tackle the science of salvation or practical tips for manipulating students into saving faith, as if that were possible. But the liberal arts tradition of education has often thought in terms of virtues, both moral and intellectual, as key outcomes of the schooling process. This is in contradistinction to modern education's focus on Bloom's taxonomy and the cognitive domain alone. For instance, we could cite British Christian educator Charlotte Mason here for this idea of moral and intellectual virtues. She says in her section on the way of the will from her sixth volume of Towards the Philosophy of Education, we who teach 
should make it clear to ourselves that our aim in education is less conduct than character. Conduct may be arrived at, as we've seen, by indirect routes, but it is of value to the world only as it has its source in character. Well, self-control, or what's popularly called willpower, is an element of that character that Mason claims is our, quote, aim in education, unquote. Conduct, or what we might call behavior simply, can be arrived at through easier means, according to Mason. She probably has in mind here the rewards and punishments, which of course have their place, but may not actually penetrate to the heart and form the long-term character of the student. Now, in the same context, Charlotte Mason says that it is time that we realized that to fortify the will is one of the great purposes of education. Now here, Mason seems to imply that education itself could be conducted in such a way as to strengthen students' wills or weaken students' wills, to bolster the virtue of self-control or encourage the vice of giving in to every whim and passion, suggestion, or desire that flits into their minds. Now it's worth stopping for a moment to consider, could we be in certain ways setting up our schools, our classes, our churches and homes such that there is no requirement for ourselves or our students to exercise discipline and self-restraint? Is every desire and whim satisfied so quickly and easily that no self-mastery is necessary in daily learning and life? Are our students kept in such a stupor of entertainment and stimulation that they don't need to exercise their wills to deny themselves and pursue higher goals moment by moment? If we were seriously to view inculcating self-control as a chief goal in our schools, I think there would need to be some large-scale reorienting of how we go about education. Commonplace assumptions about what makes learning better might need to be rethought. Self-control may manifest itself in the simple act of delaying gratification, but its development requires an intentional environment of support exercising its influence over years. As Mason says, the ordering of the will is not an affair of sudden resolve. It is the outcome of a slow and ordered process, education, in which precept and example flow in from the lives and thoughts of other men, men of antiquity and men of the hour, as unconsciously and spontaneously as the air we breathe. But the moment of choice is immediate, and the act of the will is voluntary. And the object of education is to prepare us for this immediate choice and voluntary action which every day presents. 
one aspect that Mason brings up here that we've not yet mentioned is the power of example to shape the imaginations of students. Like the air we breathe, the culture and curriculum of a school can either endorse the beauty and dignity of self-mastery or subtly undercut it through neglect and cynicism. Going further with self-control. Educating for self-control is so important a topic that it needs space to be developed more. Not only is it crucial for key educational objectives we've already discussed, like deliberate practice or deep reading, it has implications for the discipline and correction of children. In addition, we know that modern neuroscience and psychology have demonstrated the value or importance of self-control, even from a secular perspective, for all sorts of positive life outcomes. And they've described in minute detail why so much of the traditional wisdom about cultivating self-control actually works from a brain science perspective. So in my next lecture or blog, we're going to unpack more of this material and delve deeper into two tactics for developing self-control and especially their connection to the faculty of attention, our focus ability. In the meantime, I want you to ask yourself, how do you cultivate self-control in yourself, in your children, in your students? What could you practically do that would help them be educated for self-control?